pronounced by our own mouths, acted out in our own bodies, and call it what it is, evil. I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction this morning, that you would show us the places where these texts don't just apply in an ideal put on a poster in the workplace or memorize and recite way, but in a convicting, reforming, recalibrating way. We ask, God, that your spirit would do your work. And we just want to confess, Lord, that we want to be like our Heavenly Father. We want to walk in the ways of Jesus Christ. We want to live as citizens of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is almost impossible to teach from this section on the Sermon on the Mount and not hedge our bets. It's almost impossible not to get caught up explaining what Jesus couldn't have meant, what he clearly didn't mean. It's almost impossible to not feel the need to balance and add the other pieces and explain. In fact, we have a handful of old Bible manuscripts written in the Greek language from the first centuries that actually modify this sermon to make it more palatable. Okay, he says here, if, uh, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. These small group of manuscripts say angry without reason. That's the tension, that's the tendency that we all have when we read these words, is to make adjustments. We see that in other places in the gospel. We see that in other characters in the gospel. Do you remember the man who came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just recites the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then the man goes, but who is my neighbor? Right? Clarification. Adjustment. Self-justification. Now, I'm not saying that to say that we can just read this straight without explanation and just swallow the pill, because those things are still necessary. But the tendency has to be owned, and it has to be recognized. Okay. And maybe, maybe the reason this sermon makes us so uncomfortable, and maybe the reason we feel the need to add clarification, is because it really is that radical. G.K. Chesterton said that the truths that Jesus taught had not been tried and found wanting. He said they were found difficult and left untried. Let's look at the first thing he talks about here, anger, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to you, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You shall not murder. That's commandment number six. In fact, it's not really a controversial one. People may, uh, again, add expressions of that, explanations, limitations of where that applies, but that's a general human recognition, okay? That generally, taking another person's life violently killing someone, murder, 
is not okay. But Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother, to use the phrase I just used, is not okay. Now again, there is an important place to recognize here that Jesus is making a rhetorical point. And so what he's not doing here, just based on his own life, his own words, his own teachings, as well as the character of God, what he's not doing here is saying that anger is evil. Okay. We see regularly and consistently an angry God in the scriptures. That anger is part of his holiness. It's also a part of his justice. And because of that, it's a part of his goodness. We see that same anger in Jesus. When Jesus comes to the temple at the end of the Gospels and finds that this place, the only place in the whole temple where non-Jewish people can be and pray to God has become this loud, raucous marketplace where people are benefiting on the economy of religion. And he sits down and he makes, hand makes, a whip. Remember, he's a carpenter. He can do that. And then he drives them out of the temple. He's angry. So what is the concern here? The anger that we see present here is interpersonal. It's relational. And most importantly, it's on, the beha- it's on behalf of yourself. Okay. The anger that he expresses here, that he recognizes, that he addresses here, is the anger that's directly traceable to murder. Okay. Right? Remember, that's what he's doing. If, if I can put it in locative terms, he's saying, you've heard that it was said you should never go to murder town. But I say to you not to take even the first step of anger. Okay, there's a relationship between these two things. There's a spark and an explosion. There's also a relationship between the external act and the internal sentiment. Can we envision a hatred so strong that murder would be easy, but is never given the opportunity? Of course. A good deal of the anger on the internet will never manifest itself in violence because they have no idea who they're talking to or where they live. Does that remove the heinousness or the horribleness of that anger? It doesn't. Jesus says the same thing about adultery. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery. But the anger here is hard for us to recognize because we all believe in, and rightly so, righteous anger. Again, God is angry, and when God is angry, that is good. It's a manifestation of justice. In fact, generally, the place where anger comes from in the human heart is a sense of injustice. Something is wrong. And that's good. What I would suggest to you, though, 
is a couple of things we need to recognize that we get wrong about anger that here Jesus, by implication, gets right. Okay. Here's the first one. I think often we leave our anger uninterrogated. Jesus says here, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you know what culpable ignorance is? Legally, culpable ignorance is you can't say, well, I didn't see the speed limit sign, and so I didn't know it was unokay to be doing 85 in a residential area. Okay? That's non-culpable ignorance. The signs are posted. They're posted regularly and consistently. The city ordinances are something that was part of your licensing test. Common sense. All of these things rule out your lack of guilt. Okay? In the same way, I want you to think this morning about the fact that your anger is accountable anger. Just start there. Sometimes we see anger as being unmoral. Not amoral, but just not a moral category. Anger is just an emotion. It's just how I feel. Jesus here is talking about culpable anger. The second thing that I want you to recognize here is that the anger is um, the anger is actively expressed. And again, here he's going to talk about verbal things like insults and language, saying you fool. But you don't have to say those things out loud for the anger to be present. I'm talking here not about what anger does, but the type of anger we're talking about. And the anger we're talking about here is a sentencing anger. It's a hostile anger. It's an attacking anger. It's a violent anger. Now, I am an angry person. Most of you probably don't know that because emotionally I'm a relatively monotone person. My emotions don't always make it to the surface. But just ask my oldest son, who, because my blood runs through his veins, is also an angry person. And so if you want to see me angry, you will see me angry at my son as I meet his anger. And I will meet it with a volume that you knew I was capable of and have never heard. And like all of you, I have experienced anger in all sorts of circumstances that left me physically shaking. It's liable. It's culpable. That's what we're talking about here. In the book of Jonah, at the end of the book, God asks Jonah a question. Is it right for you to be angry? God interrogates Jonah's anger. He does it a lot. Think of Cain. Cain seems like a good place to go to talk about this, doesn't it? Right? The world's first murderer. And before it even happens, God doesn't stop Cain when the stone is raised to kill his brother in a field. He stops him while he's sulking in his tent privately. And he goes, Cain, what's going on? 
Cain's sin is lying at the very door. But you can rule over it. Cain's murder is premeditated. And it is grown and birthed and nurtured in anger. We live in a culture that has holistically and wholeheartedly embraced outrage. In fact, because, again, there is such a thing as righteous anger, we have justified the outrage in all of its expressions and even criticized those who won't join or who aren't angry enough or these types of things. Again, anger is part of God's character. It is in our hearts because we were made in his image, but it is bent because of sin. We have to get better at interrogating our anger. And here's how it works. One of the ways that we justify our anger is because we justify the cause. And so we would say with Jonah, you're damn right I'm right to be angry. You guys know the book of Jonah. Jonah is at very least a selfish little brat and maybe a full-blown bigot. Right? He is angry because Nineveh has repented, has turned away from their sin, and that means he doesn't get to see them destroyed. It's gross. You see, there are offenses that are offensive to God that should offend us. But it's very hard for us to discern where the offense has become personal and what we're really offended about is us. There's a difference between being a representative of God and saying, you have offended God, and being a representative of yourself and saying, you have offended me. There's a difference between wanting God's justice to be done and meeting out your own punishment as the kingdom of your own universe because they've made your life harder, because they have interfered with your plans, because they've been an obstacle to what you think is good. This is what Jesus is talking about. But there's another flaw in our culture's understanding of outrage, which is we think that anger changes the world. We think that outrage is productive. We think that if we're just loud enough or angry enough or violent enough or insulting enough, and this again is where I struggle with my son. When I meet him in anger, I want to dominate him. I want to put him in his place. I want his behavior to end, and I will justify any means to get there. And although I have never abused my son, I have handled him roughly in my anger, and that is not okay. You have seen this in other peoples. You have heard this in other voices. You have been on the receiving end of this, and yet it's still hard for us to recognize in ourselves. But there is a foolishness to anger. It is not productive. Listen to the words of James. 
Listen to the words of James and think of Twitter. This is what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Doesn't mean anger is not productive. But what you sow in anger, you will reap. And it will not be the righteousness of God. You want to know the difference between righteous anger and the anger that Jesus is addressing here? Are you quick to listen? Are you slow to speak? Are you slow to anger? Because I told you, God has anger and it's good. But what does it tell us? The first time God identifies his anger in Deuteronomy chapter 34. The Lord God is slow to anger. Now going back to what we were talking about. We see here it turns to insults turns to name-calling. But then I want, to, I want you to notice what it says in verse 23. He says, so, okay, so if anger is something you're liable for, so, right, do you see the connection between these two things? But notice what he says here. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Would you say with me this morning that anger is clearly on the table in his application there? I mean, you could read that. Maybe this is the idea is you going, oh man, I really yelled at that person yesterday. I should leave church right now and call them and apologize. But it doesn't seem like it. In fact, notice the next illustration he gives, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with the accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. It's much easier, in fact, if you just cover up verses 21 and 22, it's much easier to read that about what you do about your own sin, not how you react to the sins or perceived sins of others. Doesn't it? In fact, isn't that the way we usually handle verse 23? Be reconciled with your brother before you bring your gift at the altar. Do we talk about it in the context of anger? I would say we usually don't, and I would say we were right to do so because Jesus is unrooting something deeper here. Here's the thing. It's not merely that we're called to avoid murder or even to interrogate our anger. It's that we are to be a people of reconciliation. And that doesn't begin with the sins of others. It begins with your own sins. Jesus tells another parable in a place where he says, why is it that you seek to remove the speck from your brother's eye and you avoid and ignore the log in your own? First, remove the log in your own eye and then deal with the speck. We will never be a people of reconciliation, which is the opposite of outrage, which is the opposite of anger. It's not, 
the crossed arms of exclusion or the bald fist of attack, but the open arms of embrace. That's how Miroslav Wolf puts it. It's vulnerable, right? Reconciliation is a vulnerable act. But we will never cultivate that vulnerability. We'll never be able to understand our anger rightly until we can deal with the things that we have done to others. And I don't think it needs to be pointed out here, but when he says, effectively, let me modernize, if you're sitting in church before you open your mouth and sing to God and you realize that someone has something against you, leave church and deal with it. That there's a direct connection here between the horizontal and the vertical. That we can't keep those hermetically sealed from one another. God, I love you so much. I just have a problem with so-and-so. John says, how can you love the God who you do not see and hate your brother who you see? We are to be a people of reconciliation, pursuing restitution, setting things right, apologizing, these types of things. And the truth is, in the most practical level, that's actually really disarming when it comes to anger. If anger is a fire, apologies and asking for forgiveness is not more fire, which is what we usually do. Okay? It's a fire extinguisher. A right word turns away wrath, it says in Proverbs. How often, you know this to be true, how often is that word, I'm sorry, you're right. We are to be a people of reconciliation. And instead of being so consumed with the evil of others, we have to deal with the places where we have done evil. We have to handle that first. And like Jesus says about the speck in the eye, if you've just gotten done surgically removing a log from your own eye, it will change the way you handle the speck in other people's eyes. If you make a habit of reconciliation, confession, asking for forgiveness and restitution, it will change the way you respond to others because you will realize like I've realized with my son that that anger is not unique but that it lives in my breast too. And the truth is, if I want Logan to overcome anger, I have to show the way. And before we move forward, let me point out something that's true of this whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is not merely talking about general ethics, right and wrong. Obviously, it has implications for all those things, but he's speaking to a specific audience and for a specific purpose. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who follow Jesus. He's talking, if you will, as the king of the kingdom to the subjects of his kingdom. We, uniquely, in this world, are to be a kingdom of reconciliation. It changes the script for how we handle our anger. It changes the script for our justified outrage. Let's continue. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now again, if we just take the one who is out of that and say, don't resist evil, we have a real problem. 
God is a God who calls his people to justice, to stand up for what's right, to give a voice to the voiceless, to defend the defenseless. And sometimes this has been criticized. In fact, Nietzsche said, because of this verse right here, Christianity was a religion for the weak and powerless. But that's not what he says. He says, do not resist the one who is evil. And notice he does it in quotation of the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that passage is often misunderstood. That is a judicial sentencing statement for the courtroom and not the living room. And it is a limitation. It calls for fair and equal punishment. It is a restraint on the escalation that we know happens when people take justice or more likely vengeance into their own hands. But what was the problem? It was being turned into a justification for retaliation in personal relationships. Because you did do this to me, I am justified in doing this. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction, and that becomes the moral ground for my treatment of those around me. But notice what Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. He gives three illustrations here, and each one of them deals with an excuse we would make that would justify retaliation. Okay. The first one is the excuse of vulnerability. Right? If anybody slaps you on the right cheek, It's not said if it's deserved or undeserved, but it is an escalation. It's a moving from the world, world of disagreement to physical altercation, right? And commentators disagree on if, because of the posture of this, striking someone on their right cheek would, would basically be backhanded. And so maybe this is more about an insult, like think the gauntlets and the knights, right? You slap somebody with a gauntlet, deny their honor. But either way, turning the other cheek is vulnerable. Inescapably so. It's one thing to just walk around the world and assume not everybody wants to do you harm. But when your cheek still burns with the imprint of the person in front of you, to take the vulnerable path seems counterintuitive. Look at the second one. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic. Now notice there, that's a courtroom scene. This doesn't say if, if somebody breaks into your house and steals your tunic. This is if somebody takes you to court and the price they set is your outer garment. This is give them your inner one as well. Now here's why this is significant. Because in courtrooms, according to the Old Testament, your inner tunic was not something that could be taken from you. Because it's unfair. It's your last garment to make somebody sleep naked you know, to take them of everything they own is biblically immoral. To sue someone in a way that destroys their ability to live is immoral. And so here, we would be completely within our rights and to say, you know what, deserved or undeserved, take the tunic, but you can't have this. But the posture here is totally different. And notice, it's not, it's not surrender, it's, it's give. What is going on here? The posture is one that is a posture for those who have hurt us. 
It's in their interest. And here it's in their interest against their rights. Now, we talked about rights a lot last week, so I won't return to it, but I will just connect with one place. Paul talks about those who have strong and weak consciences in the church. And he says that the strong should put up with the weak, that they should remove their rights. I have the right to eat this. There's nothing immoral about this. Set it aside for the love of the brother. It's the same idea here, even though the stakes are a little bit higher, because unlike anger where we talked about brothers, here we're talking about anyone. There's an escalation here. This is generic neighbors. This is all comers. Okay. But the heart is one of concern for them. If you need the tunic, and this is where it breaks down. Could you read this and say, if they take you for one million, give them an extra 50,000? No, it's not the same thing, is it, in any way? The application is specifically one of basic needs. Notice the last one. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This one is so famous, it's made it into our language, right? Go the extra mile. But because of that, we can miss what's really going on here. The Roman Empire had given centurions the ability to conscript any person under their rule and make them carry stuff. Okay. You know how in police movies sometimes they commandeer someone's vehicle? It's just like that, except here you are the vehicle. But there was a limitation. They could make you carry their stuff for one mile. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience who have been conquered by the Romans and are consistently mistreated. And he says, if one of those rotten centurion soldiers makes you carry his bags for a mile, he says, offer to go an extra one. In fact, we have a few manuscripts that say go an extra two. So in the last one, it was not holding on to our rights. And in this one, it's going above and beyond what I think you could even call an unjust law. Let me remind you that centurions are the strong people of the Roman Empire. Why can't they carry their own stuff? This is really just flexing. I don't know if this is exactly what Jesus means, but do you know what two miles is to a citizen of the kingdom? It's time. Time to know, to converse with, to love, to share with. What we're seeing here in non-resistance is more than just non-violence. Do you see that? Non-violence can be an expression of this, but it's more. Again, it's not just stay away from this retaliation. It's be oriented towards something. And what I would suggest to you is, as we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, and we keep returning to these issues, because obviously anger and retaliation go hand in hand, that Jesus is moving us further and further towards the center of what he wants to say. But again, this concept of non-retaliation is not some sort of idealistic trope that Jesus prances out and then we put it in the logs and it has nothing to do with Christian living. This time, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12.
Now again, Romans chapter 12 is not merely just an ethical document for all comers. This is written to those who have experienced the radical forgiveness, mercy, and salvation that God has made available in Jesus Christ and falls in the because God has done this, how should we then live section of Romans. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You see what that is? That's intention, right? When somebody treats you evilly, pause and reflect. What would be something that would be striking to the whole watching world, right? That's the sentence. Look as it continues, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is the implication there? That to respond to an altercation or a mistreatment or misjustice with retaliation is to lose, to be overcome by evil. It does not decrease the amount of evil or wickedness in the world, it increases it. It fights fire with fire. And we're getting into difficult territory here. Jesus is asking things of us that we probably don't think about a lot. Because they're big. So let's look at the last section here. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now again, you can hunt all you want. You won't find that sentence in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It was an implication from a self-justifying people who went, we have to love our neighbors, but that's as far as it goes. It doesn't say anything about our enemies. Okay. It built upon that foundation a justification for the you know, pervasive hatred of the enemy. But verse 44, Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now again, we started with anger with brothers. That's intimate and loving, but something goes wrong. And then we talked about non-retaliation for anyone. That's big and generic, but it's also neutral. But when we get into the category of enemies, that is outright positive hostility. And let me just point out something obvious here. When Jesus says here that we should love our enemies, that's clearly not a justification for us enemizing, right? Making enemies. He's not saying, hey, once you identify the people that you hate, you should love them. Why are these people labeled as enemies here? Because they are in committed opposition to yourself. They are self-proclaimed enemies. Okay? But it'd be very hard to say that you can call them your enemies in the sense that I am against them. That's not what Jesus means here. Okay? But nonetheless, this last category is not your brothers who you have a relationship with. It's not the anyone and you know, the in-the-moment instance of non-retaliation 
its consistent opposition. In fact, he labels it here as persecutors. People who actively plot, lay out a plan to oppose, to destroy, to root out. He says, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, owning our anger, apology, reconciliation, that's one tier. Not retaliating in the moment, that's another. Actively pursuing loving those who hate us, that's even higher. And here we really get to the heart. Here we really get to the center. Here we get to what's unique about the kingdom of God. Notice what he says. He says in verse 45, Why should you do this? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. When we love our enemies, we love like God loves. And there's a few different ways to run this, and I think they're all important. Okay? The first is to recognize that God loves your enemies. In other words, we love them because God loves them. And we have a direct interest in what God loves. And we have a direct care for what God cares for. In fact, this is one of the reasons why murder in and of itself is so heinous and horrible and wrong. Because this is someone who was created in the image of God. And when you destroy that image, you attack the God whose image he bears. And so we reflect God's love by loving those he loves, and God is a lover of enemies. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. And that's difficult. We wish he wouldn't. This is what David wrestles with. God, when I thought about the end of the wicked, I almost stumbled. Because they live happy and comfortable and wealthy lives. Because they get away with sometimes literally murder. And even when they do die, they die surrounded by family in the comfort of their cozy bed. Right? That's a wrestling. That's a problem. But what, what did we just see in Romans? God will do justice. He will do right. We can trust him with our offenses. When you read the Psalms, the Psalms have a lot to do with injustice, mistreatment. And the psalmist prays things like, Vindicate me, O God. And one of the things you start to discover as you read through the Psalms, and especially as you look at the life of David, is that he's not saying, vindicate me while I'm seeking to vindicate myself. He is removing his hands from being his own savior, defender, and justifier, and leaving it in God's court. Right? David is being chased by Saul. Saul says... I'm going to get you, David. I'm going to put you to death, and I've got all of these men. We're going to track you down and kill you. And David gets the opportunity to take Saul's life, and he says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed. It's during that period that he writes these psalms, save me from my enemies, even bring them to death. Okay, so there is a justice component here. There is a good and healthy justice component, but why hasn't God done it yet? 
Because God is long-suffering and patient and not willing that any should perish, but his desire is that they should all come to repentance. God loves our enemies, even those who persecute the church, his church, his bride. When he comes to Paul and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's personal. But he comes in reconciliation, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Receive me as your Lord and Savior. But there's another reason. Well, before we look at it, let's just build the tension. Look at verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do you hear what that says? It says, what I'm asking you to do is abnormal. It's supernormal. It's above the normal, right? He says, if you don't love your enemies, how are you any different than anyone else? And this isn't an appeal to your self-righteousness to be a better person. It's a recognition of the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. What should Christians be known for according to this verse? What should be demonstrably true of those who follow Jesus on Facebook or in public forums? To hate your enemy is human. To love them, as we've seen, is divine. He continues, he says, verse 47, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Why is this the case? Two more reasons, and both of them are very well drawn out for us in 1 Peter. Just a few verses after where we were last week. 1 Peter chapter 2. In the context, Peter here is talking to slaves. He's talking about slaves specifically who were mistreated and even abused by their masters. And notice he uses very similar language, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, listen to this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Two things there, not one. One, Christ suffered for you. The other, Christ suffered as an example. Okay, let's deal with the example first. Why is it that Christians are committed to non-retaliation, to love of enemies? Because that's the nature of our king. That's what he goes on to explain here. Look at what he says in verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Okay, so the first thing he did is he lived what he preached. Jesus loved his enemies. He did not retaliate, even though he was innocent. He did not revile. He did not insult. He did not strike back. And so to follow Christ looks like this. 
That's why it says that anyone who seeks to follow Christ would take up his cross. But there's a second one here. He said all the way back there in verse 21, he says, For this to you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Not just in front of you, not just as, as an example, but on your behalf. And that's where Peter goes next here. He says, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. What is he saying? He's saying we love our enemies because we were once God's enemies. Jesus didn't just say, let me show you how to live and go through the motions of suffering. He came to us as his enemies. And that act was an act not just of example, but of love. We are called to live out the love that we have received. And we are called to live it out in a radical way because the love we have received is radical. Because all of those places where you've owned up today of this God-renouncing anger, hatred, animosity, God responded by sending his son to bear all of that willingly and freely on your behalf and to offer you not just forgiveness but an invitation into relationship participation in the very family of God adoption the filling of his spirit and as it says here that we might die to sin and live to righteousness that's not a command that's what God is doing that's what he's wanting to do in you. That's what he's wanting to do for you. That's why when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we say it's impossible. We need to hear what Jesus says. All things are possible with God. This unworldly ethic that we are called to as Christians is only fulfilled in an unworldly way through the direct empowerment of the God whose nature is this way, who gives us his nature by the Holy Spirit. Paul said back in Romans, do not be overcome with evil. And that's my fear for the church. I know the world has a tendency to generally and generically label the church as haters and bigots. And I know sometimes they're right, but not always. But I know more importantly than this, that what God has called us to is love and not hatred. It's reconciliation and not anger. It's vulnerability and not retaliation. And the reason is because that is literally the good news of the gospel. That's the type of God, not just who loves our enemies, but who loved his enemies, a.k.a. us. And so my prayer for our church, for myself, is that we would disconnect with the seething hatred of our times. That we would renounce 
and stop justifying the anger that flows in us just like it flows in them and easily meets them where they are because it already exists. That we would set aside the need to defend our rights, protect ourselves, vie for our space and our way, and instead would go the extra mile, would turn the other cheek, even when we're wrongly taken to court, would give our inner garment just like our tunic, who, like Christ, would not revile when reviled, who would pray for those who hate us, who would look different because we are different, not because we are righteous, but because God is giving us his righteousness. Let's pray. God, personally, before my church who loves me, I just want to confess a tongue that doesn't make sense, that praises God and curses brother. A spring cannot give bitter water and sweet. A grapevine doesn't produce grapes and thorns. And I just ask that you'd forgive me especially for my self-justified anger. I pray, Lord, because this root goes deep in our hearts, the root of hatred and enmity and outrage. I pray that you would just uproot it entirely. And to do so, Lord, I ask in your mercy, graciously and gently, but would you just reveal to us our own sins? Would you open our eyes, remove the blindness that keeps us from seeing just this long history of rebellion against the God who loves us? The instances where we have not let you be God but have enthroned ourselves as judge and jury and executioner who have sought to wrench the direction of history out of the arms of those who we fear in a way that does not honor them as image bearers, does not recognize that they can be redeemed, and does not count them like us as being those who you died for. God, I can't even imagine a circumstance, what it would look like if your church today in our country was not overcome by evil, but overcame evil with good. Just pray that you would transform us, that you would renew us, that we would live as ambassadors of another kingdom that is not built on violence, is not conquered through anger or through strength, Lord. But that its king is the one who stooped to conquer. The one who willingly gave his body, suffered on our behalf, prayed, Father, forgive them as they crucified him. 
Help us to know that love even this morning in a new way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. you feel led to just go ahead and um, put your hand just over your heart and your chest and just feel the warmth and the pressure and the connection um, to your heart and um, Jesus I pray Lord God we need you Lord we need to know that we are connected to you to you who are more loving, more righteous, more just than ourselves, God. We need to know now, Lord, that you speak on our behalf, that we are free. We are free from unrighteous anger because you, Lord, God, see, and you are the eternal witness. You witness the wrongs that are done to us, and you witness the wrongs that are done to others. Nothing passes by you. We can be free to be able to rest like little children now in your lap. We are free to repent. Lord, I pray, God, that we would know and be connected to your heart for us, that as we feel our hearts beating, that we, as we breathe, you are the one who gives life. You are the one who gives goodness to us. We do not need to be afraid to step into your gaze as you convict, as you show things that are not a part of your plan for our life. We can be free to climb into your lap like little children and rest because you are good. Nothing escapes you, Lord. And nothing, we can do nothing that would separate us from your love, God. I just pray, Lord, that you would let the words of this song sink deep and touch us, Lord, where we need to be touched. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word Just to rest upon his promise Just to know the saith the Lord Jesus, Jesus how I trust him
our service with communion and just if you're in the place today where you have a relationship in mind where you know that bitterness and enmity and division is is not just something that's happened to you but something that you haven't pushed back against a place where you need to set a relationship right abstain from communion today Leave, leave this at the altar and handle that first and come back and, and rejoice uh, next week. But I also want to be really clear. If, if there isn't a place where you're feeling that conviction right now, communion is essential for us to partake and remember, and it is for and only for sinners. And it is a recognition and a remembrance both that we need what these elements represent and that they're readily available for us. And so, within your own conscience, as the Lord is leading you, not worrying about if other people are watching or those types of things, all of you who claim Jesus as your Savior, let's partake of communion together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took his bread he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. He said, this is my body that was broken for you. As often as you eat it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake. After dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my shed blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Jesus, we just collectively confess our need for you this morning. We are not the righteous. And we can so rarely claim righteous indignation. But we are the ones you are making righteous, freely and through your work by your Spirit. And we want to lean into that, Lord. We pray that you'd continue to guide us away from the paths of death and darkness into the paths of life and light. That you'd help us to no longer sow to the flesh and reap corruption, but sow in the Spirit everlasting life. We pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear not just the loud, seething voices of our times, Lord, but your still quiet voice as we seek to live in every conversation and in every setting as ambassadors of your forgiving love, making an invitation, be reconciled unto God. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Let's receive our benediction this morning. And then we shall go.